0: Hello, I am Philip Kennedy. Thank you for downloading this podcast to the NYU Abu Dhabi Institute. We hope you enjoy listening to this. For more information about our programs, please visit www.nyuad.nyu.edu slash institute. It's great to see you all tonight. And I'm very pleased to be able to welcome our, our speaker, Dr. Yasser Shistawi. I would like to say a big thank you to the Emirati National House, our co-sponsors for this evening's event. And my colleague, Angela Migali, will say something about the Salama Bin Hamdan Foundation when I've finished. Dr. Yasser Shistawi is the curator, as you I'm sure know from the title of uh, this evening's event, of Transformations, the Emirati National House, which is the exhibition hosted by the National Pavilion of the UAE at the 15th International Architecture Exhibition, La Biennale di Venezia. Dr. Shishtawi is Associate Professor of Architecture at the United Arab Emirates University uh, in Ain, where he has been teaching since 1997. He's an academic whose work focuses on the city aiming to capture, describe and analyze the urban experience of city dwellers. His emphasis is on the human component of city environments which entails an examination of people's behavior in urban settings and the perceptual qualities of the urban and architectural landscapes. His scholarship deals with urbanization in developing societies, informal urbanism, urban history, and environment behavior studies, with a particular focus on Middle Eastern cities. And it's a great pleasure to welcome him back. This, I think, is his fourth appearance uh, for the NYU Abu Dhabi Institute. I remember in particular and quite fondly a lecture he gave on a tree in the Markazia district and how it is the center of the formation of sort of social habits in an area where I used to live. I no longer live there. I don't know if the tree is there anymore. But in any event, he's always welcome and I'm very glad he's here today. Before we welcome him to the podium, I'd like to give the word to my colleague Angela Migali, who is the executive director of the Salam Abid Hamdan Foundation.
1: Good evening, everyone. I'm Angela from the Salama bin Hamdan al Nahyan Foundation, and I'd like to welcome you here. I hope you will find an insightful conversation with Dr. Yashida Shustawi. The foundation is a local private foundation here in Abu Dhabi It works in a variety of areas, but central to our work is really supporting, promoting, and participating in the artistic and cultural landscape of the UAE. One of the ways that we do that is serving as the commissioner for the UAE's National Pavilion at the Venice Biennale. In partnership with the Ministry of Culture and Knowledge Development, the Foundation is really committed as Commissioner to supporting the telling of the untold stories of the UAE at this international venue at the Venice Biennale. We want to thank Dr. Yasir Shisdawi for doing such an amazing job at this mission, for telling the important story of the Emirati National House. I'd like to thank NYU Abu Dhabi and the Institute for providing the platform for Dr. Yasser to share his robust research and his insights into this topic. I'd also like to thank the National Pavilion team and the 20 some interns every year that help the curator each year realize the exhibition for students who are interested. In participating in the internship program, I encourage you to approach Leila Binbrek, the coordinating director of the National Pavilion. It's such an enriching cross-cultural experience and a great personal and educational experience. So, thank you very much. I'll turn it over to Dr. Yasser.
2: Thank you, Angela, and thank you, Philip, for the introduction. And good evening, everyone. So what I'll be t- talking about today is the UAE's contribution to the 15th Venice Architecture Binali. But uh, before I do that, i very briefly like to talk about the Binali in general, uh, the theme that uh, was uh, proposed by uh, its director and my own take, my own view on, on some of the pavilions that responded to, to that theme and my criticism towards the way the topic uh, has been approached. And the idea here is to contextualize the uh, UAE's contribution and to show how our pavilion uh, made uh, what I feel is a positive contribution to the debate that was prompted because, uh, as you will see... And a brief word about the title, Architecture Without Architects. This is a very well-known book that was published in 1964 by Bernard Rudofsky, who's a a very well-known architect. In the the 60s was a time when there was great disillusionment with modernism and some of its problems that were perceived at the time. So a whole bunch of books came out, uh, among them Learning from Las Vegas by Robert Venturi, uh, House Form and Culture by Amos Rappaport, who's my former... A PhD advisor, and there were a whole bunch of different uh, uh, books as well. And, and the idea was that, or what many of these authors were trying to do is trying to find or to search for an alternative way of looking at the built environment. And in this case, uh, Bernard Rudofsky was looking at the fairly obvious Observation that more than the majority of the built environment is actually built by non-architects, and this is very much in line with what I had in mind when we were working on the UAE's National Pavilion, as you will see. So I would like to start with this image right here. This is the uh, official logo of the Venice Biennale, and it shows uh, a woman on a ladder. And uh, this woman is is a German archaeologist, Maria Reiche, who in this picture from the early 70s was looking at or was investigating the Peruvian desert in, uh, and she found some geometric markings on the floor. So to see those markings, she stepped up on a ladder and, and looked out uh, over the horizon. There are many different interpretations for this image. Uh, one of them is that it is sort of an optimistic view that we are looking across the horizon at new possibilities, at new architectures and, and new possibilities and so on. The other more practical interpretation, which was actually given by Alejandra Ravena, the uh, Binales director, was that with very limited means, you can achieve a lot. So in this case, that archaeologist didn't have drones available or didn't have satellite imagery. So all she had was a ladder. She climbed up and she was able to carry out her work, which is very much in line with, with this theme, reporting from the front. My own interpretation of of this particular image is is that it sort of reflects, because we're basically looking at a desert, an empty desert, and it might reflect the state of of architecture in in, in some way. But perhaps more significantly is that in a Binali about architecture, we're not seeing a single building in this image. There's not a single piece of architecture. And, And this is where the sort of anticipation came that this will be the People's binale, this will be the event when architectural exhibitions such as the Venice Binale will will finally move beyond their concern with uh, pretentious theoretical constructs or esoteric formal concerns, and it will be more about the people, about their aspirations, about how architecture can address social, economic and political issues. But that didn't uh, really happen in my view. And in fact, Architecture has always been an elitist profession. It has always been seen as as a way in which capital and and architecture collude together at the cost of uh, regular people. And and the image on the left here is is from the movie The Fountainhead, based on the novel by Ayn Rand, which is uh, typically shown in in, in this context to show the master architect uh, with his uh, capitalist client, discussing architecture and building far away from the concerns of the everyday. And also this heroic vision of the architect, the master builder. And and that image continued. On the right, we see Le Corbusier on on the image on on the cover page of Time magazine, and more recently, Rem Koolhaas on the cover page of Vogue. So this cult of architecture, this notion of, of a star architect, is something that has bedeviled the profession for many, many years. And again, the hope was that this year's Binali would take us away from that. This didn't exactly happen. And in fact, in in a widely circulated image from uh, the opening days of the Binali, we see this was an event that took place, uh, I think, on on the very first day. So we we see that same emphasis on the star architect, and in this case, an all-white male panel. In the middle, we have Alejandro Aravena, the director himself, uh, the guy holding the microphone, Norman Foster, and to the far right, Flem Koolhaas, and, and a bunch of other people. So it seemed that not much really changed in terms of how the profession sees itself. And that event may have happened in that way, m- maybe by chance, but the impression was there. And during the uh, event, this image and other images from, from this talk were widely circulated and widely derided. And in fact, by by walking through the exhibition halls in in the Arsenale and the Giardini, one cannot escape this notion of the architect as a sort of master, a focus on on some very strange theatrical installations, uh, a lot of architectural models and drawings. So it seems not much changed, really. Even Norman Foster, uh, this was an installation that was built in the Arsenale. It shows foundation that he has had founded, and this is a proposal for uh, an airport for drones to be built in in Africa. Uh, So it's a very interesting uh, building structure, uh, made out of uh, bricks, local material, and we see Foster holding a drone demonstrating how this will actually supposedly work. Very interesting proposal, uh, architecturally and structurally speaking, but it's hard to see how this will actually address problems of inequality, what leads to having a need for for drones in in, in remote corners of Africa in the first place. And it's not clear if having fancy and complex structural systems to be built in in such areas, if that will help anybody. But perhaps he was trying to atone for past sins, including the central market in Abu Dhabi, which is uh, nearby. So this is an image of Norman Foster in in Abu Dhabi. And there were a whole range of other pavilions that also didn't really veer away from formalist architectural solutions. Uh, One of the uh, national pavilions that was very strongly criticized was the uh, United States pavilion, which focused on the city of Detroit, which has become a byword for urban blight following the financial crisis. And their answer to that was that they invited a bunch of different architects, very well-known architects, and they invited them to come to and to propose design solutions. So so their idea of dealing with that was to have some sort of uh, graduate design studio and to propose solutions such as as these blob-like forms on the left or on the right, some very bizarre uh, uh, cave-like structures to be built somewhere in Detroit. So that was very, very heavily criticized, and in fact, an organization was formed called Detroit Resists, specifically targeting this installation. And they, in fact, designed an app that you can download and walk around the exhibition, and it will show you an alternative view at looking at Detroit. So we can talk about that really a lot. But I just wanted to mention that. And then we have this guy. This is a partner in Zaha Hadid Architects, very well-known figure in, in architectural circles. Uh, he went on a post binali rant where he basically called for the Binali to be shut down. The reason is, according to to Schumacher, is that it is confusing people. Why is it confusing people? Because according to him, it's all about slogans and dealing with social issues and economic issues and and, and so on, even the small number that actually dealt with that. And uh, he feels that architects are not equipped to deal with social, economic, and political concerns. Architects should be much more concerned with forms, structures, technology, all that other stuff is, is not their, their problem. He was perhaps reacting to the German pavilion, which took at its theme the notion of immigrants and how immigrants adapt to the city. So that was one of the rare examples of one of the pavilions that, that dealt, I think, very positively with that particular theme. So he doesn't like stuff like that. He felt that it's, this is all slogans, it's not architecture. The kind of architecture that he advocates, though, is problematic. And uh, after the Venice Biennale, I had a chance to travel to Milan, uh, where I was invited by a group of city planners there, and they took me on a tour of the city, and this is one of the latest creations by Zaha Hadid Architects. It's a housing project right in the center of Milan, and it's interesting architecturally in terms of its forms. The curves are, you know, very interesting. But this kind of architecture is inherently hostile to the city. It is gated. Uh, The only interface between the project, the housing, and the street is a a closed fence. So projects like that create problems in terms of exacerbating inequality, uh, making people not feel welcome in their own city. And this was told to me by Milanese uh, architects and city planners who heavily criticized these kind of projects, and they're becoming more and more prevalent throughout uh, Europe, the world, and uh, even here in, in the Middle East. But it it wasn't all gloom, though. There were some very interesting uh, proposals and interesting pavilions. Just to very briefly mention some of them. On the left, we have the uh, Irish pavilion, which which was really fascinating uh, because it attempted to capture the experience of patients in a healthcare facility, people with dementia, how they experience space over the course of a day. So this was... The image doesn't really do justice to that particular installation, but incredibly moving, incredibly relevant to some of the concerns that architects should, or some of the issues that architects should be concerned with. And then to the right here, we see the Polish uh, pavilion, which was a very simple uh, installation. It looked at fair building practices and how construction workers experience or how construction workers react to the buildings that they are participating in, in building. So uh, they were equipped with GoPro cameras on their helmets, and they were filmed, and then they interviewed them. So you see all of that within this scaffolding. So it's it's kind of a critique of contemporary construction practices, which, which I think is really very very relevant. But perhaps the the one pavilion that I accommodated the the theme in a, in a very relevant way, in a very subversive way, was the Portuguese pavilion. This was located not actually on in the exhibition grounds itself, but in Giudecca, which is an island across from the main city of Venice. The pavilion was titled When Alvaro Meets Aldo. It's about Alvaro Cesar, who's a very well-known Portuguese architect, a modernist architect, an icon of modern architecture, the very embodiment of a star architect. But in this case, in this island, he, uh, in the 80s, participated or contributed to the design of a bunch of housing housing projects for low-income people in Venice, (laughs) And that particular pavilion or that particular uh, installation was about him visiting that housing project and interacting with the residents. So it's, it's an utterly moving experience to, to see or how the housing project that he built for how it has become part of their lives and, and how it has impacted their lives. So we see him interacting with them, talking to them, being humbled by, by some of the criticism that is directed at him because of the design. So there are movies that uh, show him talking to the residents, speaking uh, with them. We see him smoking and dining with people who have lived in this house. So the the house, the project he designed, it's it's not just a fancy form, but it's also about people, about uh, the humanity that uh, happened there. We see how this project has become part of their lives and how they have transformed a house into a home. So it's it's truly a moving experience that, that shows that architecture It's not just about fancy forms and complex structures, but it's also about people's lives. What is even more interesting is that once you step outside, uh, you see these billboards, and and these billboards contain images of residents in their houses. These houses are all around that particular part of Venice, so we see a lot of these images. And I feel that this is really the essence of what this binale should have been about and what uh, we should have seen more of, how ultimately architecture is, is about the people who live there. Which brings us to Dubai. I didn't really know how to make a good transition here, so, <laughs> so that's, Well, here it is. So to Dubai and our pavilion, the UAE National Pavilion. We, we had the theme, of course, we, we, we knew the theme, reporting from the front, and, and we had a bunch of different objectives in, in mind. One of them, or before I say that, we, we were sort of struggling with how can we adapt to, to this theme? How can we respond to that? And, and how can we sort of communicate the urban and architectural landscape in the, in the United Arab Emirates in a way that reacts or engages with that theme in, in, a, in a meaningful way. Clearly, we want to move away from that image, the, the city as spectacle. And this skyline of Dubai has become a byword for that. It's, it's obviously lovely buildings, but is this what we want to show? Or do we want to focus on, on stuff like that? And I will get to that image in, in a little bit. So clearly, that, that was a struggle. And ultimately, our choice was the UAE National House. The UAE National House, or as it is known in colloquial Arabic, al Beit al Shabi, People's House, uh, is a housing program that was introduced in, in the Emirates in, in the early 70s with the formation of, of the Union. It was introduced by and championed by the late Sheikh Zayed. It was basically a way to house the Bedouins. This is an image by Wilfred uh, Sesager, well-known traveler, taken in Liwa Desert in, in the 40s, and it shows the conditions that the Bedouins were living in. There were different types of Bedouins. Some move around, some stay in their place, some move further away than others. But this was the kind of housing that they lived in. Very, very basic, living in very, very harsh conditions. So the the housing program was meant to respond uh, to that. And the aim of the late Zayed was to urbanize the country. So he wanted the Bedouins to settle in the places where they were, in addition to also urbanize the the cities, the Abu Dhabi, Al Ain, uh, Dubai, and others. So this was sort of the the pre shabi model. I will show you now, this is a movie that we found in an archive in the UK, which uh, offers a very rare glimpse into the urban uh, and architectural landscape of Abu Dhabi in the early 70s. So uh, we see a lot of construction going on. And that there is, there is clearly obviously a sense of excitement. These are not Shabi houses. These are probably houses for for expatriates. But then the following scenes, this is one of the very first instances of a Shabi neighborhood, a Shabi housing project being constructed in Abu Dhabi. So we see the very primitive, the very basic nature of that uh, housing type. This is uh, an image which shows uh, one of the very first examples of a Shabi housing project. It's a very simple structure, very basic, very different from the shabi that we know now. But this is from the early '70s in Abu Dhabi, and uh, here we have another view from uh, 1972 that shows a shabi neighborhood in Dubai that shows how these houses were placed next to each other. So it, it's it's a very modernist typology, very basic, very simple, and uh, again the idea here was to bring the Bedouins who were uh, scattered all over to. Uh, settle them in one place and to uh, create a city. It was a a sort of a form of nation building. These neighborhoods don't exist anymore. This was on Abu Dhabi Island. They were were demolished in the late 70s, and residents were moved out, and other shabi houses were constructed in Beni As and other parts, which which still exist till today. So, as I said, architecturally, this was a very basic typology. A a very simple, formal uh, language was being used, very modernist. Nothing traditional about it, uh, except for the fact that we have some courtyards and certain issues related to privacy and and so on that had to be respected, separation of male-female and so on. These were some of the drawings that we found that showed some of the very early models of that particular housing type, uh, a three-dimensional model, and here we have a floor plan. So that's the architectural character of that initial type. We then also looked at newspapers, and, and uh, we wanted to know how that particular aspect of, of nation-building, how that was portrayed in the media at the time. And when we started this research, we were really, we didn't know what we would f- find, but some of the headlines were, were absolutely amazing. Masakin al Houses for the People, Zaid Yazur Mawakal, Masaqin al al-Garida, Z- these are like major headlines. Uh, Zaid visits the sites of, of the new Shabi. Houses. So this was in, in, in the early 70s. And perhaps the one headline that I found absolutely fascinating is uh, Hidayat Zayed al uh, Zayed's Gift to to the People. So clearly this wasn't just about architecture or, or about housing, but it was also a way to form a society, to, for, to uh, create a nation of uh, scattered Bedouins to a modern state. So that was some aspect of the uh, historical uh, research. This is how it was shown in Venice, uh, we had a section dedicated to the history of uh, that particular housing type. W- one of the things, though, is, is that we didn't just want to focus on history. This wasn't uh, an exhibition uh, that dealt with the good old days of, of you know, and, and the past. And, and we, d- we didn't want to engage in, in, a, in a discourse, in a nostalgia discourse, uh, and in a romantic vision. This was very much uh, about the uh, present. Which brings us to to this notion of transformation. Basically what we wanted to do is to show how the use of the house changed over time and how the house is currently being used by its residents, how they changed it, how they modified it. And there were a bunch of different ways in which we tried to to do that. One of them is by uh, visiting various cities and regions in the United Arab Emirates to show the geographical breadth of the Shabi house basically that it exists till now in, in different parts of the United Arab Emirates, and also to show the different typology and, and the, different, the different ways in which these houses have been built and that there are all these different uh, models that were built throughout the country in, in the 70s and early 80s. And just to give you an idea about, about some of these houses, and perhaps you, you have already seen some of them, uh, this is in Abu Dhabi, in, in Baniyas, this is in Al Ain. And what these images show, they show a side of architecture that we rarely see in in the Emirates. It's all about flashy architecture, spectacular architecture. We we don't really see stuff that's been lived in and and that shows signs of decay. I I feel that this is really one of the most fascinating aspects of these houses. Here, this is in Dubai, in in Shahbait al-Shurta, which doesn't exist anymore, in Masafi, Fujairah, Falaj al-Mu'alla. It's uh, Umu Qawain, where, where uh, we found this very fascinating housing project, which really looked different from anything else that we have seen. Uh, this is Medina Zayed in the Western region. Uh, we see an architecture here that, in spite of its modernist appearance, sort of blends in with the landscape. It becomes one with the landscape, uh, which uh, I found very fascinating and, and one of the really interesting things about this project. Uh, we also came across some uh, variations on, on the shabi house. This is a, a vertical shabiya in Medina Zayed, which uh, was built over uh, several floors. And we see how people closed balconies and uh, constructed roofs on top of these bal- balconies to have some additional rooms. So that was a very interesting uh, development. This here is a sort of a, a kind of a curious case that we came across. It it's, has been described as, as a ghost Sha'beya, which uh, is uh, located somewhere in the deserts of Sharjah. And this wasn't part of my research. It's something that somebody, um, Matt McLean, actually, uh, from NYU, had pointed out to us, and one of our interns uh, in Venice knew somebody who lived nearby for some reason. So uh, he went there, took some photographs, and we incorporated it here. This is a Shaabeya that, for some reason, has been abandoned, and, and people left, and the sand has, has uh, taken over the space. Our focus then shifted to Al-Ain. Al Ain. Al uh, Ain is, is one of the largest cities here in the United Arab Emirates. And the reason why we focused on Al Ain is, is that it contains some of the mo- best preserved Shabi houses uh, and Shabi neighborhoods in the United Arab Emirates. Some of the uh, uh, buildings there, the, the, the typology changed a little bit. These, this Shabi housing, for example, was built in the late 70s, early 80s. And we see some uh, decorative elements, these arches on the fence, which are a response to some criticism that has been directed at the early model, which people felt was a little bit too abstract. But then changes were made. People colored them differently just to individualize them. Landscaping became quite a significant aspect of that to the extent that the house almost disappears. People replaced doorways, again, as, as a way to individualize these houses and, and to make them distinctive building or, or putting furniture in front of the house was also a significant feature. This is in align as well. So we have here a very uh, simple architecture, and the, the idea here is, is to show how things changed uh, over time. So when it came to to Venice and the exhibition and how can we display this in an exhibition space, uh, it was a bit of a challenge. So we we had a section that dealt with the city and we incorporated the results of our surveys in a number of ways by by having uh, photographs on on walls, but also by creating an interactive map that uh, people can engage with and which they can learn more about the UAE's cities, neighborhoods, and their houses. So uh, this is the city section, and, and as part of the city section, we were also interested in looking at some of the Shabi neighborhoods and how they have been transformed and how they are being used now to, to add a sort of communal element to uh, the research. And uh, we showed that in a number of ways through typical urban diagrams and drawings. In this case here, this is the Defa a neighborhood Shabbat al-Dafa'a in Al Ain. And what captured my, my attention or what I found so fascinating here is that when you look at the backside of these houses, you see the gardens that people have built behind these houses to the extent that the house itself disappears. So what you see here are five or six houses hiding behind this little oasis that has been created. And this goes on for close to a kilometer and a half, house after house after house, surrounded by, by these gardens. And, and it's an absolutely fascinating aspect of an architecture that has changed over time, that has become part of people's lives, and, and that blends within its environment in, in a certain way. So we had this as, as a large uh, panorama This is how it was displayed in Venice. This was quite large, I think three meters long. And uh, I think it was really one of the fascinating elements of our exhibition to have this large panoramic uh, view. Another element of change and transformation that uh, I was also interested in is that these houses initially all looked the same, had the same facade, had the same floor plan, very repetitive in, in terms of appearance. Once people moved in, they, they wanted to individualize these houses and to make them look different in, in many different ways. They, they changed colors, they added decorative elements, they added rooms and, and so on. So what happened is, is that no single house that exists now there looks like any other house. Uh, it's, it's absolutely fascinating. And we did this exercise where, in my lab, we actually drew close to 80 elevations based on photographs just to demonstrate the extent of change that uh, exists uh, in these houses. It's 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 one of the most interesting elements of of the shabby housing uh, as they exist now. So here's a close-up view that shows some of these changes that that uh, have occurred over time. And uh, keep in mind, like these all look the same originally, uh, and people change them. We then uh, and and we showed that in in uh, our exhibition in a section that we call the house section, uh, which contained elements related to to the house and uh, where, where the focus is more on on the architecture itself we had two models large scale models scale to one, 1 to 50 that showed a group of houses how they have changed over time and how they were transformed and we tried to be as as truthful and as uh, detailed as possible in terms of uh, d- decoration in terms of various features that were added uh, water tanks how people use the rooftop for hanging clothes to dry, landscaping, uh, and so on. So this was a very significant uh, element in, in the exhibition, and the uh, facade study that I've shown you also appears in the back here along the wall in, in a very large size as well. So once you're there and you, you stand in front of it, it's, it's quite, quite uh, impressive. I also was interested in, in some purely formal investigations, Uh, looking at how the masses itself changed over time. And we did that in a number of ways. This slide here, the top row, shows the original state of one of the Shabi neighborhoods in Al Ain, where we have that particular configuration. So this is how the house looks from the top. And then the the lower row, based on satellite imagery, we began to uh, add the masses that were uh, added to that original typology. And, And you can see the extent of change from the original to uh, the present day. And uh, we also did that in, in 3D, showing how these masses were, were incorporated within an in existing plan. And then I sort of got carried away here, but I, I also wanted to, to map this structurally. And uh, I'm not sure some of you may be familiar with the work of Henry Glassie from the United States who looked at vernacular architecture and studied, studied it in terms of uh, its structural characteristics, how, and, and he was particularly interested in barns in New England, how they have changed, and he was trying to establish whether there are certain rules that were being followed as people were making these changes. So clearly, this is the, just the beginning of that, but I also looked at uh, one particular typology and based on drawings that we obtained from the municipality, showing how the plan changed over time. I, I wanted to construct this structural diagram just to show the possibility for doing that, and this is how uh, it is shown in Venice. We have in the foreground we have a massing model made of transparent plastic, and in the back we have these diagrams. And then to the right we, we have a series of, of uh, quotations from newspaper that shows that this notion of change and additions was actually one of the design considerations design parameters given to architects at the time that this notion of, of people being able to make changes to their houses was actually part of the uh, Shabi housing uh, experience and design. Now I'll admit some of, some of that stuff can get quite abstract and, and we really didn't want to get too carried away with that. So we wanted to shift the discussion and, and the, the experience back to the people and how they experienced the space, how they uh, modify their surroundings and how they inhabit the place they, they, they live in. So in order to do that, we, we asked an Emirati photographer, Reem Falaknaz, to uh, come to Al Ain and to photograph residents in their neighborhoods, in their shabi houses. So uh, she went there, and over the course of a month and a half, I think she was able to really... Offer us a glimpse into the lives of of, of these uh, neighborhoods and get us into the houses and and the community in a way that uh, we haven't really seen before. In an image like that, for example, even though there aren't any people there, but still, this is an outdoor space in front of the house where people typically place carpets uh, and there is a pillow. So people sit there when when the weather is is, is fine and and they interact with each other. Uh, So it suggests habitation community, uh, children playing in, in, uh, in these neighborhoods, and also inside these houses. Uh, she was able to get the stories of some of these residents, including an elderly woman who lives by herself in, in one of these, these houses. Her children have moved away, uh, and she refuses to move. And, and uh, she said that she will remain there till the day she dies, because all of her memories are in that house. She doesn't, doesn't want to leave. There were some other images, again, suggesting aspects of life that we don't typically see in, in, in modern contemporary housing developments. There is a sense of pride among some of these residents that you can see in, in their faces when, when, uh, when Reem was photographing them. This is in a neighborhood in the line called Ummu and this is one of the Emirati residents who allowed us to take her photograph, sitting in front of her house, uh, or this resident here, standing uh, in front of his house. And, and the sense of Pride and belongingness is, is I think quite quite strong here. So this formed the central part of the exhibition. These photographs were placed along a central light box in a way. but then when when you turn around this this light box and uh, you see an, a, a room, a space, and this is the climax of the exhibition. Once you move through that uh, space and you turn around, you see this this room, which is different in terms of of lighting. As, as you will see in a little bit. And this room basically was a house that we chose to uh, use as a case study. It, it belongs to, to a family that allowed us access in, into their house and also gave us the opportunity to, to use their uh, family photographs. So it's it's kind of what we wanted to, to have here is, is an experience of being inside that house in, in a very abstract way. So there is an introduction before you actually enter that room where you see some interior photographs. Then... You actually walk into that space, which in its texture and its lighting it's very different from external space surrounding this room and in here we, there are several diagrams, drawings, photographs that capture the inner life of this house in, in great detail, including a family portrait. we have a large size section that shows the house in great detail and while we were drawing this section and the floor plan, uh, we were actually in contact with one of the residents who uh, was telling us, you know, the various types of furniture and how these spaces were used, what things were changed and and so on. So this is a detailed section through that house. And here we have the house in its current state. This was an original courtyard house, which was very simple, very, very small. But then additions were made over the years, uh, and currently three families actually live inside that place. But perhaps what was really captivating and really for me was the highlight of of the entire exhibition was this family book. We we had uh, access to several types of information. We had family photographs, which they shared with us and which we scanned, which shows how the house was used over the years. And then we also had drawings that were done by uh, the owner of the house. He showed us how the house changed over time. This was, these weren't drawings that done by a professional architect. This was just a resident, and this is how he perceived the house over time. So the way he annotated the house, these drawings, and, and personalized some of these rooms is truly uh, moving. So this is a, a large-sized book that is placed right in the middle so people can peruse through the book, go through it, read, look at these photographs. And I think what, what is, is, is really captivating here is, is showing how the house itself changed over time how attached people are to that, and how it reflects their culture and their lifestyle through various events that took place, such as al Aid al-Kibir, the birth of a child. So these are clearly Emirati traditions which we see reflected in, in this house here. And to me is, is, is really the key here is, is that the architecture recedes to the background. It's really not about buildings anymore. It's not about forms. This is truly an architecture that, Response to its inhabitants and an architecture that was flexible enough to allow people to grow and to have these memories. That was the highlight, and and that pretty much forms the conclusion of the exhibition. Okay, I think the way this is set up, that we have some time for uh, Q&A. Yeah, I have many
3: questions, (laughs) but (laughs) I'll start with one and give opportunities for others. First of all, thank you for the presentation. It was really very nice for us, and I I started remembering my childhood uh, because at least most of the UAE nationals lived in such buildings. But when you said transformation, it seems that this is just the old architecture, but we haven't seen some glimpses of what happens now, or at least the kind of a contradiction between the new and the past. That would, uh, not for us here, but I mean, at least for people there in Biennale. Second thing I just want to add, it's not uh, a comment about you, but generally speaking about the uh, living environment, uh, we always try to forget the time factor and design. We look at architecture as a static. We design things from the top. But with time, everything changes. As you have demonstrated, in the house, not only the room changes, but even the the footprint changes with time. The neighbourhood changes, the façade changes, so many things change. So I think today, when we design our housing, we should put the time factor in perspective. We should design houses that are scalable, uh, especially UAE nationals, our families are not small, they're relatively medium to large size, and we like to keep our brothers or our siblings or kids next to other. So even if uh, when I got married, my mother wanted me to stay in the same house, but imagine she has seven children, and seven of them get married and live in the same house. That's not possible, but just that consideration is really important. We start the family starts small; it grows, it becomes bigger, but the house is still static.
2: Yeah, uh, yeah. Thank you for 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 this uh, really interesting question. The the first part we didn't show what's happening right now. Uh, th- this was was intentional, although I I should say it it wasn't shown during. Um, or within the exhibition, we didn't really show any contemporary housing projects being built right now. But in our publication, we allude to that. But I felt that uh, if if we began looking at modern housing developments, that this would constitute a distraction from the main theme that we really wanted to focus on, which is this typology. But clearly, by choosing the subject, by... uh, focusing so much on, on this particular housing type, I, I was implicitly criticizing current housing developments. We feel that particularly in Al where, as you know, every uh, housing is a right here, and people are allocated plots of lands and so on. So there is a problem in terms of sustainability and urban sprawl and, and all of that. So so we didn't want to distract from the initial message. And, and concerning your second comment, I think it's sort of connected to that because you, you allude to a very important element of Emirati culture, which is this notion of, of families being together. And I feel that the current typology of houses being built doesn't really reflect that because it does not accommodate, as you said, change over time. And that was why the, the initial Shabi model was, was so brilliant in capturing that. Now, it may not necessarily reflect the current needs and aspirations of the current generations. But I think there are lessons that can be drawn from there. So I'll I'll leave it at that. Thank you.
3: Yes, hello. I was wondering, based on your study, I know you haven't focused on the modern architecture, but we do know that, especially in Alain, these beautiful shabiyas are being demolished and replaced with something less desirable. And it has to do with what people's needs and expectations for modern living are. Based on your study, what would you wish to see happen to preserve these Sha'biyah? And, and from a more technical side, I'm not sure if there's additions that can be done in a sensitive way that could help preserve some of these aspects and mm-hmm. protect the Sha'biyah as a whole.
2: There are several aspects to that. I, I think just in terms of the ShaBiyya being part of, of the UAE's Built heritage, I I think they should be preserved or some of them should be preserved just for that fact that uh, it reminds people of how they used to live. But even in terms of being of of current use or or being useful uh, uh, for the present, there have been some efforts from the Tourism and Culture Authority, the Abu Dhabi Housing Authority who have looked at these these house types and and tried to find ways in which they can be preserved and adapted to modern uh, conditions and and to modern uh, living. But clearly the situation that is happening now is, is that many of, of the residents who live in these shabby houses move out, and they are either being left to deteriorate or they are occupied by, by laborers. But the, the hope is that by, by studying this model and, and looking how it is being used till now, uh, how it has been adapted over the years, that we can draw lessons from them and at the same time preserve some of these neighborhoods because they capture some of the very notions or, or, or some of the issues that, that many current planning officials are trying to, to replicate in terms of density, in terms of sustainability, uh, green areas, walkability, and all of that. So, so, so these are, I think, uh, important aspects that, that can be preserved and by which the current model can be further uh, modified.
0: I was gonna ask what uh, experience or piece of architecture or project in the UAE in your career has moved you most as a scholar and has moved you most as a person?
2: Well, uh, well uh, interesting question. There, there are many, um, but I guess the, the one thing that, that really captured my attention and, and has been sort of a, a guiding force th- throughout my research and my writings is how people here use urban space. I mean, that, that was one of the first observations I had was laborers hanging out on street corners. And... The reason why, why, why this was such a, a profoundly moving experience is, is that the way the city is planned and the way it is designed, it is not meant to encourage these sort of gatherings, but they happen anyway. So I found that, and I saw that in Al Ain, I saw it in Dubai and in Abu Dhabi and various places, and I've conducted many, many studies that looked at how residents and inhabitants of the city take advantage of whatever is there and try to make something that uh, caters to their culture and to their lifestyle and so on. So so that particular aspect of informality, uh, I found that truly, truly moving. I mean, that, that was one of the things that, that I noticed when I first came here. Uh,
4: I thank you for the very interesting talk. I, I certainly enjoyed the the subtle contrast between, for example, the Burj Khalifa picture and then followed by the shabia. And I admit that I always kind of looked at the shabia as a as a building without any architecture. And I'm, you know, so glad to be, to have come tonight to see its beauty and its modularity and how sustainable it is. And how it also matched the Abu Dhabi family in the seventies or the pre-oil family. And then as the families grew, the houses grew. So I have one question on that is, is there a mastermind behind this design? I saw that there is, the, the, the drawing was by a German or Brauner cycle architectural firm. Yeah. The second question is, other, outside of the fact that it's a guarded building, what reservations do you have with it, given that it's, a, to me, I find it to be a, a very nice, modern-looking, forward-looking building. Thank you. Yeah.
2: Uh, the first question about a mastermind. That was one of the things that that we we were trying to we were investigating and, and really trying to find out like who's who's the, the very early models of the uh, shabby house the first plans that we saw were by Halcrow in the late sixties a British British firm but subsequently a, a number of architects got involved the the German uh, people that that you saw there that, that that those were one group that were involved in in, in this uh, initiative. We actually managed to interview them. That's part of part of our research. But then they were also like they would offer these bids, and then they would invite consultants, and they would propose. So I can't really say that there is one specific mastermind, and and I think that that uh, was something that we it uh, it didn't really trouble me greatly because it's really not about the the architects or. Uh, whoever designed these, but but it's about the changes people made, and, and that really was was my focus. So I'm not that keen on knowing exactly who did what. We make reference to some of the early models, but w- one of the interesting things is, is is that the guiding hand, the guiding force, was the late Sheikh Zayed. He, he was really uh, hands on in 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 being involved in this. He instructed the architects to design the house in a certain way according to certain principles related to privacy, provision of courtyards. When you look at that initial model, it, it, it is to a large degree based on, on the Arish house in terms of its, the courtyard and some of the, uh, the enclosure that was created and, and, and so on. So th- there were many many people involved, many voices, and, and I think that's, that's fine. I, I uh, don't want to elevate names uh, without, without reason. Regarding the Zaha Hadid project, um, yes, it's, it's nice. I mean, it, it's architecturally, it's, it's beautiful. It's, uh, you know, you, you, can, you, you can stand uh, in front of it and, and admire the curvature, uh, the complexity of, of the facade and, and uh, uh, the way it's been designed using parametric design or whatever software they're using. I mean, all that is good and fine, but I think the problem is in terms of its social implications and what it does to the city. And a project like that on its own is, is you know, it's, it's, it's it really not going to harm anybody. But the problem is that it has become a model for many cities throughout the world. And traditional neighborhoods are being destroyed. People are being displaced just for this kind of architecture. People want to live in the inner city. Let's build a gated community. Let's turn our back to the city. That I find that problematic. So it's not necessarily the, the architecture itself uh, or the formal language. <laughs> but it's What I find more problematic is, is in terms of, of the message it sends to the rest of the city.
3: I was curious, in the write-up, you talked about moving away from the spectacular and how that was both lauded and disconcerting. And I'm curious, I'd like to hear a little bit more about what you mean by the spectacular and also what your experience was in terms of feeling disconcerted or feeling like um, it was something to be lauded. I would be curious about your feelings.
2: Mm-hmm. Well, uh, moving beyond the spectacular, I mean, and that, that was, uh, again, one of the main aspects of, of our research. And, and uh, the reason is that uh, when we talk about Gulf architecture and Gulf urbanism, certain cliches come to mind. People will tell you it's an artificial environment, it's an environment, it's a city, cities are filled with skyscrapers, fancy shopping malls so 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 that's one end of the spectrum uh, the other end we have exploitation of laborers and, and 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 labor camps and people living in abject living conditions so there are certain clichés that that exist and and with regard to, to to the spectacle we we wanted to move beyond that and really to show a different side of architecture and urbanism in the emirates uh, to show the environment uh, of the everyday and that it's not just about that right in terms of my, my own feelings, I mean, clearly since, since I've moved here and whenever I'm, I'm in, in, in any academic venue or I, I talk about the, the Emirates and Dubai and so on, I always find myself on the defensive. You know, people tell you, you know, it's, it's all about skyscrapers. Or, so this was sort of personal, you know, that, that uh, I, I wanted to show that it's not just about that. That research, the Shabby House, is, is part of that experience.
4: Hello, uh, this question's a follow up to that one. Currently in the US, there's a major kind of blowback against giganticism in urban architecture, you know, very large buildings with less um, street front activity. Do you see this trend coming up in the UAE and in the Gulf region in general and becoming a major market source
2: for real estate? Yeah, and again, the, 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 the Binali with its theme and its sort of focus on, on social concerns and so on uh, is, is kind of a response to that. There is a realization that current trends in terms of planning and architecture are not really sustainable and, and can can lead to a lot of uh, problems. In terms of, of the the UAE, yes, there, there is a change uh, and a move away from that, but I think it's it's still within an overall mentality and framework that favors uh, economics and finance over, over other concerns, uh, and just to give you an example, um, in, in Dubai the City Walk uh, project in Al Wasl, which has replaced one of the traditional neighborhoods, shabi neighborhoods, shabi shorta, is is a basically a traditional shopping mall, but it uh, responds to this trend of having outdoor frontal activity, uh, for, frontal uh, sh- uh, shops and stores, but still it's it's within a very exclusive mall. Overall, you know, so so we didn't really change that much. Uh, You just changed the way it looks. But the overall uh, approach is still there. But it's, it's, I think, a step in the right direction. Hopefully trends like this will continue and uh, we will have cities that are much more oriented towards the street, towards public space, and which then become accessible for everybody. Thank you, Doctor, for the interesting lecture. In Dubai now, they are proposing to build national housing, but in, in buildings, like in apartments. Now, I'm assuming that they have done some studies before they make such a, a decision. But I want to know your opinion. Do you think something like that would work? Or I'm not really familiar w- with this, but uh, I know that in Al Ain, a few years ago, there were similar efforts. Actually, in Al Ain, they did a survey of residents that happened several years ago where they were asking Emiratis, would you like to live in an apartment? And many people said that, uh, yes, uh, we don't mind, but it's uh, only temporarily, till we get an actual house. right? Living in, in an apartment has its, in an apartment complex has its problems in terms of privacy and, and, and these sort of things. So I don't know. I, I, I feel it's something that definitely needs to be addressed, because current trends in terms of allocating land it doesn't really work. It, it costs a lot in terms of infrastructure, also in terms of a- availability of land, it's it's quite problematic. There are waiting lists for getting houses and, and plots of land and so on. So something like that can be a solution, but it would require, I think, a cultural shift in terms of privacy and, and things like that. So.
5: Uh, hi, Professor Jasson. Thank you very much for the lecture. It was, it was really wonderful, actually. Um, it's more like a comment rather than a question. Um, the first one is regarding the um, the idea of, of what Schumacher was talking about. And it's, it reminds me of what uh, Giancarlo De Carlo actually said, uh, who's actually from Venice. And he's he actually commented that architecture is way too important to actually be decided just by architects. And the people need to be involved in the decisions. Uh, and we're talking not just um, committees, but also the people that will be living there. Yeah. So it was nice to see... Abrositha being humbled by the inhabitants of that, which obviously was a, a building in that, um, in in the city. Um, the other one is regarding the uh, uses of of space. There's a few questions regarding the new Shabia house. So if you just talk about the, um, I didn't know it sounds like an interesting news about the uh, the, the idea of adopting apartments as Shabia apartments now. But it's, it's, it's something that we, as uh, with my colleagues, um, interior design colleagues, and, and what we have to deal with teaching our students as well, it's how these spaces are actually used, how these houses are actually used, because we have preconceptions that we come with from the West and from wherever we come from around the world. Then there's the preconceptions that the, our students who are mainly Maratis, that they have and they live here of how they should be living as as 21st century inhabitants. And then there's also the preconceptions that, that we come kind of like in a romantic way of how, how they used to live, uh, looking at the the beautiful images, by the way, and of, of how the spaces could be. And and there's always we always end up kind of having interesting discussions about, about why one is better than the other. Or, or or and I was just wondering if you had something to comment about that. Because I think there's still quite a lot of research to be done. One on, and it's something that you touched at, at the center of your, of, your, um, of the actual um, pavilion itself, uh, discussing how the space was used and, and, and looking at the photographs and the memories of these people. But it's interesting to f- figure out as designers, because we tend to actually uh, look at buildings as objects and design rooms to, with specific names and then plunk the people inside them. Where the description, that, the way you were so eloquently describing that, that gentleman's house, and I think my students looked at some of these names and they laughed because they say, oh, these are specific Emirati terms given to these rooms. Mm. They're not like a Western translation, that's an Arabic translation to a Western name, they're specific. Mm. And I was wondering if, if, if you will agree with me that there is still quite a lot of room for research to um, To look at how space was used, how is it now, and potentially looking how it could be used?
2: Yeah, no, absolutely. I mean I, I agree definitely. When uh, housing is 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 a very tricky, it's it, it's always problematic because you, you are dealing with with something that is very personal. So how you design a house that that becomes I think quite a challenge for architects and designers. And uh, typical formalistic solutions will not work you know when you're dealing with with uh, housing at, at that scale. So, yes, there is absolutely, there needs to be more research uh, that, that is done. Because otherwise, you, you will come to the design of these houses with certain preconceptions about, you know, uh, how people live here. And, and uh, things have changed, you know, because sometimes we may have romantic notions about s- people se- sitting outside the house on a carpet. But maybe that is not really that important anymore. But certain aspects are, like a majlis or or something like that. So there's definitely room for that. And, and I think one important aspect... What we wanted to do through our research is just to provide the basic, the beginnings for that. But clearly more needs to be done, and I think also in terms of beginning to suggest specific design solutions. How, for example, can the current Shabia model be adapted? How can it be changed to reflect uh, modern requirements? So I think these are very interesting architectural questions that we as architects need to start asking. Ideally, I would have liked to show in the exhibition a proposal for a reconfiguration of a shabby neighbourhood, for example, you know, and, and, and changing it to reflect modern needs. But uh, the, the space and the time didn't allow for that. But there's definitely room for, for, for further working on this.
1: I just wanted to go back to the beautiful film that you showed and kind of explore where this transformation or where these transformations came from. Whether the, the Bedouin-style dwellings, the Arish houses, demonstrated or, yeah, a similar kind of transformation, like a modularity and creativity. Like if, if this was part of your research or if this kind of transformation was documented before the Shabby house even, and then whether the transformations of these Shabby houses were almost an attempt to return to the Arish, like socio-spatial structures maybe.
2: Oh. Yeah, well, uh, th- that's interesting. Uh, to quickly answer that, uh, one of the things when we were doing research in the media and the newspapers, th- there were investigations at the time at how people reacted to the house when, when they moved in. And in fact, they were complaining about a lot of things. The separation of, of the, the g- area where people received guests versus the family wasn't strong enough. Uh, the kitchen was uh, connected to the house initially, so they didn't like that. The fence was, wasn't high enough. So there were all these different things that the initial designers did not take into account. The Bedouins who moved in complained about them, so changes to the design were made subsequently. Uh, the kitchen, for example, was separated from the main area of the house. And sometimes people made the changes themselves. They, they increased the height of the fence and, and did a, a range of other things. So this is, it's a very, I mean, we only started get, like getting into that Uh, very briefly while we were doing the research. But there's such a wealth of information in these archives about the changes people made and their complaints and and what they liked about the house, what they didn't like, and so on. So so that stuff is there. I'd like to thank
0: you so much for a wonderful